Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is David, and I am the pastor here uh, at Redeemer Church, and um, actually one of the pastors uh, on the campus of this building as well. Uh, so so good to be here, and um, so thankful. Actually, just thinking this morning how thankful I am that, that we even have a place to be here uh, to worship at 9 a.m. Uh, you, you know, if, if we weren't a, a church with two campuses, I honestly do not know where we would be at. And, uh, and all the alternatives that we looked at, none of them worked out. So it, it, I just am, am very thankful um, for, for our, our friends uh, who are part of this campus who made this work for us. Um, I'm also very excited about October 8th. Uh, I, I've been working um, crazy hard to make that date happen, and, uh, and, and I know that a lot of you guys are ready to be back. Um, as much as I appreciate this space, I'm ready to be back in our own space, and, uh, and, and the pieces are coming together. I really am fairly confident that that's, gonna ha- that, that that's a hard date. Like, we're going to make it. There's a chance we could make it earlier, but we're playing it safe and saying the 8th. So, uh, so that's, that's going to be a glorious Sunday. I, I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, today, as I get ready to preach, um, as you can see, uh, we're going to talk about why God allows natural disasters. And th- this is, is no small topic. Like, this is, this is uh, a big question, and, and I, I, I want to be... Um, honest about it. I think it's a question that, that a lot of people are asking right now in, in a lot of different ways, especially as we, uh, we, we watch uh, not just one but two hurricanes crash into our country, and we continue to hear things on the news. And, um, and, and, and as I approach it, uh, I, as, as we usually do, we, we, we pray. And I'm going to ask you guys to, to actually pray for me uh, as, as I get ready to preach, um, I have a little trepidation about this one. Uh, I, I want to have the courage to speak honestly and biblically about what, what uh, is true about natural disasters and God's sovereignty here. But I also want to convey um, the, what's also true biblically, which is the good and warm heart of God, even in the midst of, of suffering. And so I would appreciate your, your prayers um, as, as we all bow down to pray and, and get ready to hear the word this morning. Let, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I come before you, we come before you now um, as a people who know your son Jesus, who are getting to know him even more and more, who through Jesus uh, understand and know you better and by the power of your spirit um, are able to live new lives, are able to have minds that are transformed to understand your good and perfect will in this world, Lord. And, and I just pray as we come before you uh, with, with big questions and thoughts on our mind, Lord, that um, that the words of my mouth would, would be pleasing to you and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, last Sunday, um, 
we were here in this space. It, it, it was two weeks, three weeks after the, the worst of Harvey had hit us, I think even less than three weeks. And, um, and we found ourselves praying uh, for another hurricane that was about to hit another coast in, in our nation, Hurricane Irma. I got home and watched the images of landfall and storm surge and destruction that had already happened on islands. And, and it reminded me, um, and, and, and I'm sure many of you too, that uh, Harvey wasn't the, wasn't the first uh, natural disaster that we had experienced. It already wasn't the last natural disaster that, that had hit our nation and our country, and, and, and that there had been, as, as bad as Harvey had been in its devastation and the havoc that it wreaked on human, human life, and as bad as Irma was being in those moments, like, it, it, it reminded me that, that even those natural disasters hadn't been as bad as some of the others that have befallen people in our world. Maybe you remember this event, December 26, 2004. Um, was a date where in the middle of the Indian Ocean, actually about 150 miles off the coast of Sumatra, there was a tectonic plate shift and uh, an earthquake that measured 9.1 on, on the scale. And, um, and as the result of that earthquake in the ocean, there was a tsunami. And this enormous wall of water, multi-storied, moving at unthinkable speeds, was headed for the coastlines, the densely populated coastlines of uh, Indonesia and Thailand and southern India. And when those waters finished their surge, um, there, there was... Uh, billions of dollars in damage. There was, I think, 1.3 million people who were displaced, who no longer had a place to live. And there was um, 230,000 people who died. 230,000 people who died 13 years ago in, in a natural disaster. Just to, just to put that in perspective for you, in, in that single moment, that tsunami, that was more than double the people who died, Americans who died during the entirety of World War I. That's 100,000 people more than live in the city of, of Pearland died. And, and I remember then asking the same question that, um, that comes to my mind right here and right now as we are... Um, still in the devastation of Harvey and Irma, but not nearly the devastation that we saw then. It, I mean, it, it, it's the question, why? You know, why did this happen? Why did God allow something so horrible and, and devastating to happen? And, and I, I asked that question in like the visceral, heart-wrenching hurting sense that we all experience when we see events like that, sometimes when they hit our own lives. But, but I also ask it in, in the theological, wondering about the character of God sense, like who is God if these type of things can happen, right? It, it just doesn't seem consistent with a lot of the attributes of, of God that we know that God is good, 
that God is all-powerful. David Hume is a philosopher from the 18th century who, looking at the same thing, posed the question like this. If, if, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? If he's not able, then God must be impotent. That's not the characteristics of God that, that we know. Is God able to prevent evil but not willing? Hume said, then God must be malevolent. He must be not good. And that's also not the character of God that we know. So, Hume said, is God both able and willing to stop evil? And the implied question is yes. And and, and Hume says, so then why has God not done it? Why hasn't he stopped it? John Stott, one of the greatest uh, Christian thinkers of the last century, said the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and, and has in every generation. And, and, and I think he's right. Like I, I think this challenge of, of suffering that we, as, as every generation, as every individual human being, experience over and over again it just forces us to ask really hard questions that, that demand an answer. And, and, and I think it's really important to clarify, particularly now when we're asking this question after Hurricane Harvey um, or a tsunami, that we're actually nuancing the question of suffering a bit. We're asking a different question than if we're, if we're asking God, why do you allow human suffering in the war in Syria, for instance? Because Harvey is, is making us ask questions of things that happen naturally. It's suffering related to, to natural things. Philosophers actually call this kind of suffering the result of natural evil, because there isn't any human derivative for it. It's simply part of the natural processes of our world. When we experience those processes, we're experiencing the natural events that are always working themselves out in, in the world that, that we live in. When, human comes, when suffering comes from human causes, like the war in Syria, what philosophers call that is moral evil. Because morality is linked to humanity, and, and, and so it's a question of why does God allow humans to do this kind of thing to, to one another? When there's a war, we can point to human hatred. When there's suffering from poverty, oftentimes we can link it to economic injustice. But humans don't make hurricanes. Humans don't cause earthquakes, right? Those are natural things, and, and, and thus the question of suffering in those settings is, is sharpened. Like there is nowhere else to directly turn to other than God. The, the, the blame gets placed solely and squarely on the creator of the world who made a place where there is such a thing as hurricanes. And the question is, couldn't God have done something differently? Couldn't he have created a world without hurricanes? Or when those things happen, why doesn't God intervene? And, 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 I, and if I'm going to be true to the scripture here, <clears throat> I think it's important to recognize that at times, in both the Old and the New Testament, God has intervened and stopped natural things from happening. Just one story from the life of Jesus. Uh, he, he, he was out with his disciples all day, working and, and doing ministry in, in, in the villages, and they decide to go out that night in a boat. 
Maybe you're familiar with this story. Jesus lays down to rest. They go out in the middle of the night on a, on a boat, and it's a calm, cool night that evening until suddenly it's not. The winds pick up. The waves get, get, get strong. In this small sea that they're in, they're in the middle of a squall. They are fearing for their lives. The disciples are terrified, and they wake Jesus up. And in Mark's gospel, they say, do you not care about what's happening? Teacher, do you not care if we drown, is what they say. And Jesus, waking up, looks at them and says, you don't have enough faith, ye of little faith. And then he calls out, he looks at that sea, and he calls out to it and says, be still, right? And, and in that very moment, it seems like, in the Gospels, what was once this horrible storm is, is now a glassy sea. Like they're, they're resting in complete calm and still under, under a midnight sky, right? And, and the question the disciples ask then is, who is this man, right? What's the point of that story? Well, really two things. One, that, that Jesus has the power to calm those raging seas, and he does it. Uh, but, but the second one is, and this answers the disciples' question, who is this man, that Jesus was God, that he had the power as God to call out to, to, the, to the wind and the waves, stop. And they recognized his voice just like he made them in the creation of the world. And so Jesus was proving that he was God in his very ability to intervene and stop the natural processes that were happening in, in, the, in the world. And that's one of the stories in the Gospels, and we hear it then, but then think about it now and wonder, Jesus, if you did it then, why can't you also do it right now? Why can't you calm these other storms? You know, um, before I get into the Christian answer to this question, I, I think it's really important to point out that it isn't just Christians who have to give a response to the question of human suffering. It's, it's not just the Christian worldview. All worldviews have to make sense of the suffering that exists in our world. If you're an atheist, if you're an agnostic, if you come from a Buddhist or a Hindu or Islamic or a Jewish or a Zoroastrian, any worldview that exists, a new age perspective has to make sense of suffering and answer in a logical and coherent and, and honestly good way. Make sense of the real suffering that we see in the world and then provide a real answer. And, uh, and, and suffering may be the biggest challenge to the Christian faith, but it's probably the biggest challenge to any worldview that exists out there because it's one of the greatest questions of life. And, and I, I will tell you in my own faith journey, uh, which, which actually was forged in the fires of, of experiencing very unexpected human suffering, um, as I considered the, the, the Christian answer to, to, to suffering and looked and surveyed and explored all of the others that existed. I, I just want to say, I, I, I think that Christianity holds the, the strongest answer. I'm not saying it's without tension, but, but I'm saying it's the one that actually deals with the reality of suffering and, and at the same time offers a, a, a real hope within it. Just to give you an example of other ways that other worldviews deal with this, take, 
Take the perspective that there is no God, the atheist worldview. How does the atheist worldview view an event like Harvey? So in atheism, right, by definition, there's this belief that there is no God, that God does not exist. And in this world, all we are is the material. There is no supernatural. There is just the natural, right? And, and so we are atoms, molecules, and physical forces uh, specifically moved by our living, living DNA that moves us towards some outcome of, of perpetuating our species. And in this worldview, the, the non-physical world, earthquakes, hurricanes, and all the suffering they cause, there, there, there's no meaning inside of them. It's just the way that, that things work. It's just the way that our universe comes together and, 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 and moves and acts. It just is. And as, as, as uh, the, the well-known, probably most vocal atheist right now put it, he said, in a universe, Richard Dawkins, he said, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice, right? And, and he's being honest about his own worldview there. In other words, if God does not exist, then it's all natural, and that is how it is. Like, like there isn't natural disasters. There's just natural you can't add disaster to the end of the atheist worldview because from this perspective, you can't even really even call it a disaster because when you call it a disaster, you're actually affixing a moral value to it to say that it's bad. And, and it's really difficult, in fact, I would say impossible to, to assign a moral value if, if all we are are material, natural processes. If this is just a naturalist perspective. And so what atheists will do is smuggle in a morality to stand on and call something bad when, when in reality they have no basis of, of doing so. And actually, if you push a person like Dawkins, Dawkins on this, they're going to admit that fact. Right? And actually, all that is, is, is a topic for a, a, another day. But, but to be clear, if there is no God, and life actually doesn't have meaning, the suffering that we experience doesn't have a, a, any meaning, and, uh, and I just don't find that perspective particularly convincing. Every bone in my body screams that there is more to life than just my bones right? And, and the pain we experience in suffering, I, I, I think, and, and some atheists who have become Christians have admitted this, was one of the greatest evidences that there was meaning b beyond the material world. It was the pain itself that led them to understand that, that life had meaning. Okay, so, so that's an atheist perspective. What about agnosticism? And, and, and what I mean by that is this, this very large group of people that, that is broad and diverse, but, but um, who aren't willing to say there is no God, who say that there is some sort of spiritual reality to our world, but, uh, but, but don't identify with any particular religion. This is the growing group of people in, in our country who check none of the above in the religion section on, on the census. And, um, and I recognize that this is a broad and diverse group of people, I also uh, have many friends who are in this category. And, and one of the things that I appreciate about a lot of these people is, is they, they, 
recognize the reality and, and the pain of human suffering. They don't like it. They want to alleviate it. They want to end it. They don't like it in other people. They don't like it in natural causes. And so their position, a lot of times from the agnostic position, is to do what we can to, to, to alleviate human suffering, to, to, to end it. And, 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 and I, I really appreciate that. Like, I, I think it's very good. I am willing to partner with anyone who wants to stop suffering in, in our world. But I, I think the challenge with this agnostic pers perspective that believes there is a God and a morality, it, it, well, there, I think there's lots of challenges, but, but, but in this particular case, like, the problem is history. And when you look at what we've actually done in trying to solve the suffering in the world, a lot of times what we discover is we make things a lot worse. And, and we haven't had great results at our efforts in, in making the world a, a better place. Uh, we, we cause more suffering than we create in healing, and we haven't really dealt with what's wrong, not only in the world, but in our own hearts, which when we lead others to suffer. And, and, and on this question of natural disasters specifically, we actually, in this perspective, don't have any real power to do anything about it. There isn't any hope that it's ever going to change, right? It, it, it's just, I hope that we can put a Band-Aid on the wounds that, that do come. And, and so, again, I, I just don't find that to be a very helpful perspective. And, 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 and please don't hear, hear me as throwing stones here. What, what I'm trying to do is tell you in this very challenging and real dilemma that all of humanity faces, everybody's got to come up with an answer. Every single worldview has, has to make sense of suffering, and, um, and, and, and we don't need to think that the, the tensions that exist in the Christian answer are the only tensions. Uh, they are not at all. What, what is the Christian answer? To suffering. Let, let me give it. To, to, to understand it, we really need to begin at the beginning of the Christian story, back to Genesis. So Genesis 3, this is the key passage in understanding so much of what is, is wrong and what is right in the, in, in the world. Adam and Eve, in the beginning of Genesis, are created by God, and there is an adjective used to describe what God says after he creates them. He said they are good, right? Thea did this with the kids. God is good. When God looked at his creation, he said it was good. Not just Adam and Eve good, but the creation, the natural world that God made was good. And that's not just a, an identification of I feel good about this beautiful place that I made. It's a moral value. God made the world good. And God made Adam and Eve good. And so together, Adam and Eve, uh, in this world with God and in the creation, are living this wonderful, beautiful, good existence, right? But, but you guys know the story. In Genesis 3, it all changes, right? God specifically tells them the one thing they may not do is eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
and they may not decide that they know what is good and they know what is evil. And there's so much going on there, I don't have time to get into all of it. But what I want you to notice is that after they eat from the fruit of that tree, when God begins to talk about the consequences and the curse that is going to happen in this world because of that action, it's not just dealing with their relationship that now is broken with God and their relationship that's now broken with one another. The creation itself is included in that brokenness as well. Let me read it. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the fields. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. All right, so did you, did you hear, did you have ears to hear that it, it wasn't just our relationship with God or one another there was language that included creation in there. And, and, and that's so important to recognize that. God said to Adam and Eve, cursed is the ground. Cursed is the natural world and the natural order. And you're going to now have this relationship with it where you would have eaten it as you did. But now you're going to have pain and toil and you trying to get what you need from, from, from the world. There's something that has gone amok now in the foundation of the world. And I really actually appreciate um, if you have read the Jesus Storybook Bible, the kids' Bible, and the way that it talks about creation, the moment they eat that fruit, suddenly it says, like this deer that was there darted away from Adam and Eve. A dove flew out of their hand, and it said they had broken the wonderful relationship with God, and now everything else would break. God's creation, that Jesus Storybook Bible says, would start to unravel and come undone, and go wrong. And, and that's, that's true. Like, that's really good theology, especially for a kid's Bible. And, 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 and so what Genesis 3 says specifically is, is that the world broke. And, and the foundation that God had laid in our very creation was not how God had intended it. And now it was going to hurt us. This part where he says it will produce thorns and thistles. It's, it's this idea that those things are actually going to cause pain. The world will now hurt you. The world has come unhinged and it is now dangerous. And, and this isn't the only scripture in the Bible that talks about this. In the New Testament, in, in the book of Romans, is Paul is trying to give this big explanation of what is happening in the world, and actually he's talking about suffering, he again picks up on this idea that creation is included in the, in the suffering that exists itself. Romans, Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Here's the part, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be re revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, 
not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Right, so, so do you see that same idea again here in Paul? Uh, in the language of that verse, creation was subject to frustration. There's uh, something frustrated in the way that the world works now. And, and, and so what Paul is saying in the, in the things, the suffering that we experience as we long for something else to come, creation has that same experience and is also longing for something better. Uh, we wait for freedom and glory. So does our world waiting for a freedom and glory from the curse that it lives under. It, it, it's, it says to us that the world right now and the natural processes that exist are not as God intended them to be. Not all things that are, are as they ought to be. Just because it's natural doesn't mean that God intended it to be that way, and that's true of, of creation. And so, so here, we understand the plot. We understand what happened, but, but where is the message of hope, right? Like, where is the answer to the question of suffering and evil and, and natural disasters in, in the Christian story? And let me answer that question by, by asking you this. Where does everything in the Christian story point to? It's the cross and the empty tomb. The cross and, and the empty tomb, it's the same for creation as it is for us. Everything points to redemption in the cross and the empty tomb, and that includes our world. And here's a crazy detail you may never have thought about, but, but do you realize that when Jesus died, there were some natural events that were recorded, right? There was an earthquake, and the sky went dark. What happened in, in the spiritual realm and the death of Jesus was felt in the natural world. That's what the author is telling us here. As Jesus breathes his last breath, there is this, this rift again in, in our world, right? But think about this. When's the next earthquake in the story? When the two Marys, three days later, head to the tomb, and they get there, and there's a flash of light and another earthquake when Jesus is risen from the dead. There's an earthquake at the cross. There's an earthquake at the resurrection. And, and it just all points to the fact that, that, that God, what he does in healing us, he also is doing in healing our, our world. If we limit the gospel to just what happens and God forgiving my own sins and make this a personal thing just about me, we miss some of the bigness of, of the promises that we have in Jesus. That Jesus, uh, his death on the cross and his resurrection mean that all evil has been forgiven and all evil has been overcome. It's about remaking the entire world. It's why the Bible talks about the redemption of all things, a new New heavens and a new earth, our sins are forgiven. When God takes the throne, it means that our relationship with this world will be healed too. Creation itself will be made right again. And that, friends, is the Christian answer to natural disasters. And it's, it's good. I, I know of no 
better answer that says this is real and this is not how God intended it, but one day God will make it right again. I I, want to say that uh, G.K. Chesterton once said that for the Christian, the ultimate questions are answered even if the penultimate questions are not. The, 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 The biggest questions are answered even if the smaller questions still are not. And and when it comes to the way that we individually, specifically experience natural disasters, why didn't God stop Harvey, right? Why did God allow an Irma to come hit hit, hit the shores of Florida? Actually, this is where the tension is. There isn't an answer to that question in the Christian story. This, this is actually how the book of Job that we were in last week ends. When, when Job asks the question specifically of him, God comes down and interacts with Job, but he never answers the question of why right here and right now. And, and, and I, I don't want to, to, to be dishonest here. This is where the tension exists in, in, in the Christian story. We don't understand the will and ways and sovereignty of God, Right? And, and, and it's really the same question that exists in all suffering. Why did Jesus go to this village and not this other village? Why did Jesus heal this leper and not that other leper, right? We, we don't have answers to that question. But, but, but see, here's the thing. This is, this is where Chesterton was so right. We may not know the answers to those smaller things, but it is okay because the biggest answer is the one that's the most important, that even if this doesn't happen for me right here and right now, it ultimately will. God has ultimately made this right, right? And, and Martin Luther once said, I think so well, when you look around and wonder whether God cares, you must always hurry to the cross and you must see him there. Because it's, it's in that big answer in the cross that, that we know God entered into our suffering, that whatever we experience, Jesus is right there with us, that we are never on our own during a storm, but that Jesus suffers with us. He takes whatever burden and consequences there are for our, our sin and our rule-breaking on himself in his own body. And, 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 and so even though we may not understand what's happening right here and right now, we know that we're not alone and we know that ultimately there is great and tremendous hope, which is where I, I just really want to leave you guys this morning. I want to I finish by praying um, some, some words from Scripture. Romans 8, right? That same passage we were in earlier, Paul talks about the love of God and how we are not separated from it. Paul, who himself experienced many natural disasters, who himself suffered quite a bit um, in terrible ways, these are his own words, and, uh, and you may recognize them, but I want to pray this scripture as we are holding on to God um, in, in all the human suffering that, that we see. So let's pray. Lord, You promise that, that you, that no one will separate us from your love. 
You tell us that neither hardship nor distress nor persecution nor famine nor nakedness nor peril nor sword would separate us from the love of of God, uh, from your love that you show us in Jesus. And we know that in all these things, Lord, with you, because of what you have done in in, in the cross, we are more than conquerors. For you have promised us that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Not anything even in our creation can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you write that truth on our hearts? Would we hold on to it as we rebuild our lives and our cities? And would we know that it's the greatest hope that there is out there? We pray that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.